I've stood outside the house where he grew up. I've stood on the stage with him. I've listened to his music by myself. I've listened to his music with the people that I love the most in this world. And through it all, I feel like he's a part of me in ways that I will never, ever be able to explain. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's stoked to welcome my friend, Serge Belanco, to gush all over the heavy grace and poetry of Bruce Springsteen's 1984 triumph, Born in the USA. But before we get into the masterpiece itself, I'd like to tell you a little about Serge. He's a man who's lived a whole lot of life. Writer, rock star, loving husband, devoted father, American Civil War enthusiast, lifelong Springsteen fan, and cool rockin' daddy in the USA. Welcome to the podcast, Serge. Thanks so much, Lori. It's really cool to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you specifically to talk about Bruce Springsteen. I told you offline I needed a true fan to come on and help me with this one, and so thank you for taking the time. Hey, you know what? I, I, again, like I'm really excited, and there's no other artist on earth for me that would be such an honor to be called a true fan for. So I think you got the right guy. I'm really going to try hard. I know I got the right guy. In fact, I know I got the right guy because I want to talk about a little post I saw on your personal Facebook. Uh, you wrote a post June 4th, 2019 about the 35th anniversary of Born in the USA. And I would like you to read that post for the listeners, because I think it's important for them to get a true sense of what Bruce and particularly this album has meant to your heart over the years. Happy 35th to one of the most important things that ever happened to me and to a lot of kids like me. I was 13 the year this album dropped, a chunky kid in the American suburbs, part baseball, part mongoose, part boleros, pizza. I had lust inside of me I did not understand and a yearning desire to be someone even though I could see the writing on the proverbial wall, dude. I was probably bound for mundanity. I would probably even die from it someday. But Bruce's songs here connected with me in a way that nothing had ever hit me before. Suddenly I caught my first whiff of regular life and of the poetry she reeks of. I never looked back. No one who fell in love with Springsteen around that time did. Some of us were just kids that summer of 1984. And when I dropped the needle on this one, I could suddenly feel the sun shining on my young man's skin again. Me standing at third base, me looking out the ocean from the boardwalk, me playing air guitar in the mirror to no surrender, the goosebumps running up and down my spine like I was born to fake singing that song, a tennis racket guitar in my hands. I listened to it on the ride home from work tonight, windows down, hair blowing back like Stevie Nicks, Diet Coke in my veins. Fuck the world. And you know what? The goosebumps are still exactly the goddamn same. Oof. Okay, so I saw that, and that just got me right in the heart, and I felt every word of that. I believed you. It's true. <laughs> you know, I have to be honest with you. So this album came out in 1984, and I remember my dad had the vinyl, and he used to play it. And at that time, I mean, I was really, I was, I was eight. I was obsessed with Madonna. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Bruce didn't really speak to me in that way. And in preparation for this episode, I went back and I, you know, I know Springsteen singles. I'm not, you know, someone that knows like the deeper cuts. I went back to listen to this album and it has been on repeat. And I felt like for the first time, I got it. It's interesting, isn't it? I think that's not unusual with great albums in general. Mm-hmm. And I would say as a huge Springsteen fan, it's certainly not unusual with Bruce's work to be able to revisit it over and over again at different times and perhaps to have it hit you much later after you first heard it um, harder than it's ever hit you. You know, that continues to happen for me as well. So getting it at eight years old certainly wouldn't be the same as getting it now, you know, and I feel lucky to have tapped into somebody like him that has that kind of presence in my life, you know, repeatedly uh, presenting the the work and, and it just continues to blow my mind. I mean, it really is a true gift, isn't it? To have an album that really speaks to your heart that continues to give back to you year after year, depending on what you're going on, what's going on in your life, what you're going through the good times, the bad times, it's always teaching you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's so powerful. And so to listen to Born in the USA and to think like, wow, there is so much to this album. I never knew. There's like a, I don't even know how to explain it because in, in many of the songs, you know, Bruce is shouting, Bruce means it. And then in other songs, it's almost a quiet whisper. Mm-hmm. And there's so much in the quality of his voice. Yes, the words, obviously, you know, you're a writer, I'm a writer, words are very important to us. But it's been like a journey for me in a surprising way. I wasn't expecting to feel this way. And I do. And so now I'm inspired to check out more of his work, particularly Nebraska. That is an incredible record. Um, It's it's obviously one of his masterpieces. I believe he has several. Most people tend to sort of Think if you think of uh, uh, Bruce's whole catalog, you, you usually have two or three records um, that are your favorites, and mm-hmm. Nebraska is almost always one. But you can't go wrong. Um, I think with any artist in any capacity, if you, if it suddenly moves you unexpectedly, especially, and then you can kind of go digging in their bucket, so to speak, and uncover all of this treasure. It's one of to me, it's one of the most beautiful things in life is to is to either rediscover or discover for the first time. I'm pushing 50 in a couple months, and I'm still discovering bands for the first time. I can't keep up like I used to. Right. Are you talking like older bands or are you talking newer music? Sure. I, I, I discover older stuff as much as I discover newer stuff. You know, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I'm more intimidated by newer music, I think. Um, so if somebody comes to me and, you know, if my, one of my kids are, you know, nine and 12 and talk to me about XXX Tastion and, and all these different, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, man, I, I want to wrap my head around this, but I don't know if I, I, if I can, or if I even should try, because in a way it's yours, you know, this is yours. And that's just like the same. I don't try and push Springsteen on them, you know, but I hope by osmosis it will, it will trickle down, but it most definitely will. I promise you. I'm I'm one of the biggest Elton John fans in the universe. He's my go-to. I love all things 70s music. It's just what I gravitate toward. Mm-hmm. And 
my parents were fans. And so here I am. And when it comes to like newer music and stuff, my kids are really into rap and newer artists. And I'm sort of like, uh, and Elton John actually collaborates with a lot of newer artists. He's really good about that. <laughs> so in like a weird way, he's introducing me to new music Yeah, because it's like, I feel safe with Elton John. Like he's my safe space. Absolutely. And uh, you know, I think that's a really good point. And I think for even with Bruce Springsteen at times in my life, I've read interviews with him and he'll mention something here or there that I hadn't known about, you know, and, and right. right away, I'm really hungry then to, to hunt that down. Um, that's one of the cool things. I think, again, if, if you can trust the artist that make the music that you yes. really, really love, if you can trust yes. them at that level to say, Hey, leave me even beyond your own work. Um, and I think that's a huge part of almost every uh, musician's life is, is sort of digging beyond the records that they love to find where the inspiration came from. Yeah. And so when we talk about your relationship to Bruce Springsteen, this obviously started at a very young age for you, but Alan Carr once said, you should never meet your heroes, but you did. Not only did you meet Bruce, you had the opportunity to perform with him. And just to give the listeners a little more background on you, Serge, you're in a band called Mara that was formed in the early 90s alongside your brother. And I actually encourage everyone to pause the pod, go to Spotify, check out Mara. <laughs> Fantastic music. If you are a Bruce fan, you will most definitely be a Mara fan. In 2016, Rolling Stone did a profile on Marah titled How Marah Made the Best Americana Album You've Never Heard. And it goes on to say, Marah developed a relationship for sweat-soaked live shows akin to those of their mentor, Bruce Springsteen, who invited the siblings to perform with him on stage at Giant Stadium in 2003. Okay, that's got to feel surreal. Can you tell me a little about that experience? Sure, yeah, it was uh, definitely surreal, um, but also one of the greatest nights of my life, you know, quite frankly. And I, and I played a lot of music across, you know, half my life, really, from the time I was 24. We toured a lot. I've, I've met a lot of people in music. I've met a lot of cool people that no one's ever heard of before. Some of the greatest bands I've ever seen are bands that sort of fly under the radar. Mm -hmm. But Bruce Springsteen was the one exception, you know, was the one person that, you know, had been kind of the center of my cultural solar system since I was a kid, you know, since I was like 12 years old. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we did kind of um, get to, to meet him uh, through different channels and, uh, when we put our second record out, I think is around the time when it, it kind of amped up a little bit. And, um, and it sort of culminated at one point with him telling my brother and I to, uh, you know, he, he handed us these passes and he's like, you could, yeah, these are good for, you know, whenever. And, and I looked at my brother and I'm like, does he mean when, whenever, like at any show, you know, like we could just show up. <laughs> what does and, it mean? <laughs> and it was, you know, to two kids from suburban Philly who had grown up loving this guy. I mean, it was literally like, you know, I still love Christmas time and Santa Claus, but it was like Santa was like, listen, man, here's the reins to the sleigh and um, let's, let's go. Let's go out together. That's a golden ticket, Serge. So yeah. few people in life get to have that experience. And when you're in it, when you're on stage and you're performing 
with Bruce Springsteen. Are you thinking to yourself, oh my God, I'm on stage performing with Bruce Springsteen? Or are you like completely out of your head and your body and you're not even really there? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, you can't complete, if I, probably I could have easily gone completely out of my head. Yeah. And then I probably wouldn't have remembered it like I do. You know, I was really, really conscious of the fact that this is, is quite possibly never going to happen again. And I need to remember this. I need to really freeze this moment as best I can. Yes. But that said, you know, you're up there and I often, I'm not lying, Lori, I, I will sit by myself, uh, with a glass of wine in the evening and try and recall, you know, exactly what it was like. And you know, like anything else, it begins to fade here and there, but the overall gist of it, I still do recount, uh, you know, impeccably. And yeah, it was, I, I don't know what giant stadium holds 75, 80,000 people. Um, it's a lot of people. And what struck me probably the most was that, you know, I had played music, at that point, every night of my life in some small bar somewhere. Right. And we play really loud. Our band is a rock and roll band and, and we just play loud rock and roll in a bar. And, and I stepped out on that stage and, and Bruce, you know, kicked into the song and I was like, man, this, it sounds like I'm listening to this on my car stereo, you know, halfway up. It's not even that loud at all up there. Wow. Uh, yeah. So you could really, if I had wanted to, I could have just started talking to him right there in the middle of the song. That's, right. So I, that struck me as something that, and for whatever reason, I recall that forever. Um, you know, now these days I'm partially deaf because of my, uh, you know, years in music. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like, you know, the details of that experience, like you said, they begin to fade over time, but the feeling, the energy of that moment stays with you. And that's what really matters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so performing was just part of your experience with Bruce. He also played guitar and provided vocals on Mara's song Float Away from your 2002 album Float Away with the Friday Night Gods. Mm-hmm. So were you actually in studio with him? Well, we weren't. And I, again, it's sort of a long story. He, we were recording that record in the country of Wales. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so we were back and forth with Bruce. We really wanted him to be on this particular song. And uh, I, a funny story I could tell you is that we were sitting in the courtyard of this very famous uh, studio where you can live uh, called Rockfield in Wales. And we were sitting in the courtyard one day, and you know, it's this bright British afternoon, and you know, staring at this phone and it wasn't a cell phone. It was a landline. It was stretched out of the studio and it was sitting on this little table by itself. And it was a phone that uh, we knew that Bruce was due to call any minute now, you know? Oh shit. So it's like a bat phone. Yeah. It was kind of like the bat phone. And it was, it was pretty awesome to be there sitting and, you know, we were smoking our cigarettes and (laughs) drinking our coffee. We were very nervous and, you know, we knew him a bit at this point, but again, I, I had to freeze myself in that time and say, I'm probably never going to be staring at a phone that I know that Springsteen is about to call again. Oh, yeah. You're like, be cool. Just be yeah. cool. <laughs> and the phone ultimately rang and we all looked at each other. We were kind of cheering and fist bumping. And and then my brother had to answer it. He got chosen to answer the phone. And uh, and it was Bruce Springsteen on the other end, you know? And, and so we set it up and he... We ended up recording in New York City. He was really generous with his time. You know, I can't say enough about the guy personally. He's just 
an awesome human being. You know, he, he, he went way out of his way to be friendly and cool and not just kind to us, but like really made me feel like a brother or something every single time I was around him. And, you know, for somebody like I grew up without a dad, you know what I mean? Okay, and there was, there, was yeah. there were times when I was like, man, I, I might ask Bruce if he wants this gig, you know, like if he wants to be old Serge's dad. Because, right. <laughs> but yeah, it was just it was just a real pleasure to know him and to, and to experience, you know, the recording process was really fun. We did everything we needed him to do in a matter of a couple hours. And then he spent the entire day with us. We went bar hopping around Manhattan. We went to an Italian restaurant for dinner. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was it was he's, he's a really good person. And I can say this. I know that we are not the only band or unheard of artist or whatever that he's ever done that. with. He's he's just. You know, if if he gets any sort of, uh, I don't know what it is, but if he has any idea that you're s- someone that he could sort of relate to musically and, and soulfully or whatever, then I think that um, he, he might go for it. You know, and the fact that he is tapped into musicians who are true fans, he's tapped into music on maybe the local bar and club scene that's playing smaller venues, the fact that he wants to be a part of a band's journey, that really says something about him as a performer, as an artist, as a true lover of music. Yeah, you're right. I don't think he's ever, and it sounds cliche, but I just don't think he's ever forgotten where he's come from. And I think he's almost made it his sort of parallel life's work along with his music to remember that remember where he comes from and to remember to give back quite humbly and quite quietly in his own way you know he doesn't want any honestly like this is probably the most i've ever talked about this except maybe to people at a bar or something you know um because it felt very sacred and it still does it's not the kind of thing where it's like and i I like it I, i like talking and telling people about it just so that they understand why he's still alive and he's still with us what a great dude he is you know oh that's awesome yeah well thank you for sharing that serge that means a lot i'm i'm so happy that people can hear about bruce the man bruce the mentor bruce the man that's my gospel i will preach it until i'm dead nice okay so do you want to talk about the album let's do it all right so this was released on june 4th 1984 It was Bruce's seventh studio album. I was surprised to learn that. So I suspect that you are very familiar with his catalog. Had you listened to everything up till this point when you were a kid and and maybe your introduction to Bruce was this album, but did you immediately go back into his earlier works? Yeah. So I grew up in just outside Philadelphia. So I grew up with the radio and Philadelphia was one of the very first places in the world that sort of embraced Bruce Springsteen. You know, we okay. had some DJs, a guy called Ed Shockey, who is a legend. Um, and Ed was one of the first persons to play Philadelphia or to play Bruce in Philadelphia. And so I was kind of lucky in that his music was already a part of the lay of the land, you know, as I was growing up. So I think in a lot of ways, um, Born in the USA kicked down every single door possible for him and and his music became instantly accessible but in a strange sort of i guess selfish way i feel like we had him first i get that yeah. you know we're from philly and he was ours but um 
And so th- that there's always a special connection. And I think even if you ask Bruce, I, I would say, I would think he would say, yeah, I, Philly was always a special place for me. But looking to 1984, at that point, you know, MTV was a couple years old. MTV had landed like, you know, a massive UFO in the middle of my town, in the middle of anybody's town. And it, it just shot out its lasers and, and got us all, you know, I was hooked. And so there was a lot of different kinds of music that we were suddenly exposed to. Um, and it wasn't just sort of classic rock radio anymore. Um, obviously, the music in the mid 80s, well, you guys reveal a lot of it and talk a lot about it, but there was so many, so much like synth stuff and dancey stuff. And, oh, yeah. And so I felt suddenly like, wow, there's a, there's a lot to pick from. Now, looking back from now to the, you know, there wasn't a lot to pick from, mm-hmm. but it felt like there was. Um, and so Born in the USA came out that June. I was 12 years old. I had just gotten out of sixth grade. Okay. And I, I, you know, it just blew my mind. Like all this stuff on MTV was awesome. But then along came this guy that I was vaguely familiar with just from the local radio. And, but this was the first time where, okay, an entire work was presented to me and I had a couple of bucks for my paper route and I'm going to go buy this cassette. You know, I've got Huey Lewis, I've got Prince, yes. you know, but I'm going to go get this dude because I've already felt like maybe there was something there. Now, were you already playing music? Were you playing music from a young age or was Bruce sort of the impetus to that, the the inspiration to, hey, you know what? I really like his music. I want to maybe learn how to play a couple of his songs. I And then you start writing your own music. Yeah. It's funny. I had never thought of that really, but it, it did coincide exactly with the time in okay. my life when, when I began to at least pretend to play. So my brother is two years younger than me, Dave, and he ended up being a singer and guitar player in our band. Okay. And, um, but he was more driven, I think, to begin to play the guitar and stuff. So he got the guitar first. So he must have been about 10. And it was that summer, you know, because I do remember us sitting on my mom's front porch and and I began to get really jealous that Dave was able to start to play the beginning of Glory Days and things like that. And, um, you know, as an older brother, I was just ready to sabotage anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, well, instead of doing that, maybe I could take this other route where I could, you know, force him to show me uh, all that he was learning. And uh, fortunately, that's the direction that we went. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so British DJ Roger Scott called Born in the USA a defiantly rock and roll album. So what do you think about that? Uh, Yeah, I like that because, again, you have to remember in the 1980s, I don't really know that much that would have qualified as rock and roll, historically speaking. You know, there were still bands like the Stones and and Elton John and people like that. and, And the music they were making was still rock and roll. But you also had these other genres that were beginning to branch off and rise up and and become more prominently visible, you know, and and audible uh, all over the world. So with Bruce, the funny thing is, I think that at times with the Born in the USA record, he tried to embrace some of those elements um, with synthesizers and things that... He had in his work before, but like a lot of records that came through the mill of the 80s, um, you know, sometimes I wonder if some of these artists went to bed one night and and then one of the producers just got out the synth and was like, and put it all over the record. <laughs> and they woke up the next day and was like, it's too late. We shipped it off. It's done. You know, 
more synth, more yeah. synth. <laughs> it just ended up in some strange places, but that was the time we were living in. So looking back now, I think that Bruce is is pretty much rock and roll to the core, you know. Yeah. I don't know how he would have shaken that even if he tried. At the same time, I think when you're sort of trying to put music on the radio in a big way at a time when it's it is, you know, culture club and flock of seagulls. Yes. I think there was probably maybe an element of outside voice that said to him, you know, you should consider this, but knowing what I know about Bruce, it was his decision in the end, you know, right. and he has all these incredible musicians. So I think that um, there's an element of, of even old fashioned protest music, especially yes. to the title track to my hometown begins to sneak in there with things. There are themes that Bruce had touched upon uh, to some degree, but I really do believe that, you know, this was a record where everything that he had been orchestrating in his mind for a long time, this great American novel, so to speak, of his entire legacy, born in the USA was the culmination of all of that. That is the perfect way to describe that. This album is the great American novel. The dreams, the disappointment, the desire, the desperation, it's all there. It is. And the funny thing is, a couple of his other records are the same. You know, they, they, they sort of have that, that great American novel ethos to them as well. I sure. think, anyway, you know. But this one, even when you take Bruce's life, his, his own life, and I like to do that. If you know anything about an artist and you say, well, this guy was around 34, 35 years old. So that's the prime of your life in a lot of ways. You know, um, it's probably the prime of your artistic life. If you've been doing what you're doing for a while, because it's your glory days, if you will. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Right. So he's this guy. And if you know, Bruce at the time, from what he's written and said in interviews, he was kind of lost in a sense. I think he had chased his music and his, his vision for his work for so long that he found himself uh, lost in the sense that he didn't feel rooted in one place. He didn't feel rooted with a uh, family. Uh, he didn't necessarily feel good about all that he had even accomplished, you know, and that's hard for so many of us to imagine, I think. And I think it's probably easier for someone like a musician to imagine than a regular, you know, person working in nine to five. I mean, you know that from your experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you travel so much. It's a different stage every night. You know what you wake up, where am I? You're mm -hmm. always traveling. What time zone am I in? You know, what do I really have? That's keeping my feet on the ground. I need to be able to grow, but I can't grow unless I'm planted. But then, you know, the nature of my work takes me everywhere. These are some difficult themes and struggles for people, for artists particularly. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. And so looking at Bruce, you know, in 1984, say he's 35 years old, I think in the 80s, you know, that was an age of American transition. You know, there was mm -hmm. a legacy of, isn't it time you settle down? Isn't it right. time you got married? Aren't you going to have right. some kids? You know, that kind of thing. Even if you're the biggest rock star in the world. Right. Um, yeah, it's the midlife calling of it all, right? I think so, you know, and and maybe for some people, they push that off enough uh, to where it subsides, but unconsciously, it probably eats away at them. And and you could even argue, and we're going out on a limb, but it probably has destroyed some really good people. 
yeah. um, at that level because yeah, sure. they they just absolutely refused to embrace uh, that idea. And from what I understand about Bruce, you know, I think born in the USA, who not only represented this incredible breakthrough for him culturally and musically, uh, he became, you know, a, a zillionaire, I, who knows, you know, but at the same time, I think it also became this breakthrough for him psychologically where he understood that I'm not happy, you know? Right. He's spoken openly about how he 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 was very depressed at the time, and and that was the first time that he really, you know, opened his eyes to that, and uh, and essentially was curled up on the floor, from what I've heard, and and, and was begging for help. You know, and yeah, he's been very open about his mental health journey and his path to healing and wellness and living a more centered life, and that especially. At that time, I mean, these were just things we didn't talk about, and particularly men didn't talk about. And so, for Bruce to be the example, the ideal of masculinity, playing this, you know, hard rock and roll music, and he was so successful to be open about his struggles, that helped a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, hearing him talk about that now, and I've experienced a lot of, anxiety and depression in my own life. Mm -hmm. And, and there have been times when I can't even explain how important it has been for me to be able to sort of say, well, my absolute favorite musician of all time is, is on, you know, 60 minutes talking about that. I mean, that's a really, really important thing for me to be able to plug into and a lot of people um, to hear it. So you're right. You know, that's an incredible point is, you know, I think at the time in the born USA era, he wasn't as outspoken about right. it because it was new to him. Sure. But if you listen to certain lines of the record, um, you know, particularly and I'm on fire and th- there's some stuff in there, uh, downbound train, there's some lyrics in there that are, that are very telltale that it would indicate a guy who, you know, is confused and, and is quite possibly hurting. Right. Debbie Miller in 1984, she did a review of the album for Rolling Stone. And I really liked what she had to say. She said, his characters are born with their broken hearts. And the only thing that keeps them going is imagining that as another line and another song goes, there's something happening somewhere. Though the characters are dying of longing for some sort of payoff from the American dream, Springsteen's exuberant voice and the swell of the music clues you that they haven't given up. So here, the characters in his songs, to to the point that you were making, they all have broken hearts. They're all struggling in some way, but there's this glimmer of hope in them, in the chorus. You know, Bruce, I, I read another article where Bruce is saying like, that real joy is in the chorus. Like the hard parts are, are in the lyrics of the song, but the chorus is where the joy is. And that's where the hope is in his music. Yeah. And you see that, you see that throughout this album and listening to the album with this in mind, the characters haven't given up, but they are all still struggling. Yeah. Yeah. That's really astute. I like that. Um, yeah. I, I think too, like I was reading an interview recently, or at least a quote when he was talking about this record and he was talking in particular about the song, No Surrender. I never knew this, but he he really didn't want to put the song on the record. Um, and and it, exactly for the reason that you're saying, I think he began to think that maybe he was 
putting a little too much hope into ah, the voice okay. of his songs. And, and he very specifically said, you know, these characters, these, these people in my songs are, are hopeful. And I'm paraphrasing now, obviously, but you know, the, the, they are hopeful, but they're also really banged up from life and, right. and, and their daily lives are very difficult. And sometimes hope isn't enough, you know, sometimes hope isn't enough to carry over there. And so it's really, it's really cool that you mentioned that because that, that brought this back to my, to my mind. And I think that again, it shows an artist at his peak who was still in, in the very throes of being as successful as anyone could be still questioning whether his voice was too far this way or too far that way. Was he, was he capturing what he really wanted to capture as well as he could? And of course, I think, it, you know, in retrospect, most of us would say he did, you know, he did capture that, but I, I, I admire the fact that of, a, of an artist, it's a, it's the artist torture, I guess, is just thinking that you're never quite there. Right. I mean, in spite of the fact that this album obviously was a mega success, it went 15 times platinum. It sold over 30 million copies worldwide. It was the best selling album of 1985. And out of the 12 tracks on the album, seven of them became top 10 singles. I mean, more than half of the songs on the album. It's just incredible to consider. It was nominated for a Grammy for record of the year in 1985. It did not win surprisingly, but it has gone on to be one of the best-selling albums of all time. Okay. There's 12 tracks on this album. Do you have, is it like a favorite child situation? Can you pull out one track that is hmm. your favorite? It really is hard. You know, I would have to say if I had to pick one, it might be Bobby Jean. Really? Yeah, I really love that song. It does something to me. It makes me, when I listen to it in my car, I feel like I could push a button. I can't figure out what button yet, but that I could make my car fly. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it, it just feels like that to me. And I don't know if that's a popular choice amongst Springsteen fans. Of course, they love to argue about what's best. But <laughs> for me, I you know, that song really does it. And I, and I also, you know, back to your last point, I think it, I think it does capture a little bit of, of both sides of where he was coming from here, you know, from, from a sad place and also from a, a somewhat hopeful place. Right. You know? So I had read, and, and I don't know if this is true. Maybe, maybe, you know, better than I do, but I had read that this was about his longtime friendship with Steve Van Zant, who had left the E street band prior to this album. Correct. That's right. He did. He, he produced the record. Okay. And then he left. He okay. left. So I know that he was invited back to be part of the Glory Days video. He's my absolute favorite part of that video. But have you heard that this song is about, you know, their friendship and his heart hurting from that departure? Yep. You're right. I have heard that. Um, okay. I've never heard it officially mm -hmm. declared by the man himself. Um, but I do. I love. I love the song, and and when I listen to it through that lens, I still love it. You know, I still right. think it's really cool and, and very cool in a different way. It is quite possible. It's hard to imagine that Bruce wasn't wildly affected by losing his one of his best friends in right. the world. You know, um, right. But I've also always wondered 
if how early like it would have to be a chronological thing you know with bruce he writes songs and stuff um leading into a record he probably had a lot of songs written but did he have bobby jean written before the record or you know when did when did yeah. steve tell him i'm not gonna exactly what's the timeline of events we we need to break this down you know right. i had heard that the songs on this album were recorded in conjunction with all the music recorded for Nebraska. So it's like the Nebraska born in the USA sessions. And they went on for like a couple of years. And so because Nebraska is such a different album, it's interesting to consider that both of the albums were recorded sort of at the same time, if you will. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. I think a lot of, I think there was a lot of overlap, you know, and I even think there was overlap from prior to Nebraska was the river. And I, I, I've heard right. that some of the songs that ended up on Nebraska were even alive as demo recordings during the river. So right. he was, you know, obviously at a point in his life where he was writing a lot of music and write a lot of songs, probably being really hard on himself as to what was going to work. Um, and there are three very different records, you know, the river, Nebraska and born in the USA are very different records, uh, but very Bruce in their own fashion. So it was a hell of a run, you know, oh, yeah. no matter where those songs came from. Definitely. My favorite song is Cover Me, which was actually written for Donna Summer. And I think the reason I like this song so much is it sounds very Stevie Ray Vaughan to me. Do you get that vibe from it? I've never thought of that before, but that's very interesting. I really love Stevie Ray Vaughan. Me too. I'm a fan. Yeah, I can I can see that. The very there's a very intense lead guitar. Uh, it's like a comet through the whole song that you oh, sort yeah. of just hanging off of, um, which is yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I've never thought of that before, but I I like it. Yeah. Well, I had two thoughts when I was listening to the song. One was, wow, the, this reminds me of Stevie Ray Vaughan. The second one is, and these two bands are not at all similar. <laughs> the Killers. This sounded very much like something the Killers would do. Yeah, no. Bruce actually collaborated with the Killers kind of recently. So I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, there you go. I mean, influences abound, so. Yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of favorite songs on this album. We're not going to talk about in too much detail, but My Hometown, which was actually the seventh single, that one just gets me right in my heart. What are your yeah. thoughts on that one? Oh, it's an unbelievable song. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. So like about oh, two weeks ago, um, there was this uh, exhibit in a, in a historical society museum in Monmouth County in Freehold where Bruce was born. Yes. And, and it was called Springsteen, his hometown. And they had like the little Tascam or Tiak, I forget what it is, four track recorder that he made Nebraska on and, and all these different, like there was a giant scrapbook that Bruce's mom made throughout his career. It's like this oh. big, looks like a, like a Roman Catholic Bible. It's so, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So my wife and I went to Freehold and it was really the first time that either of us had ever spent any time there. So we came out of the exhibit, which was wonderful. And then we just started, it was hot as hell that day, but we just started to walk around and drive to different places and see all of the homes where he lived as a kid. And I was going to ask you because the picture on the single sleeve for my hometown for the single 
has him standing outside the backyard of his old home at 39 and a half Institute street. I was going to ask you, have you been there? I've been there. Yeah. It's really cool. And you wouldn't know there's really not much um, in the way of like historical markers or anything, which I think is how Bruce wants it right now. Okay. Um, These are just regular streets where people are continuing to live their lives. Um, The only difference is that I think they get a lot of strangers walking around (laughs) checking. Did you encounter other people doing the same thing? Well, we didn't encounter anyone doing that that day. And it was very, very hot. I will say that. So, but um, we did encounter uh, some people that live like right next door to the tree that Bruce used to climb uh, when he was a kid. He talks about it in his in his biography and stuff. And so so it was just a really cool day. Like, like it was just, my wife is a huge Bruce fan as well. And so, yeah, it was really a a way for us to just like, I don't know. We didn't even have to talk half of the time, you know, it was just like, can you believe that we're standing here? And I know that's really nerdy. No, I, it's not, it's an energy, right? So you were just, you were feeling the energy of the sort of the sacred space you were in. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about some of the music videos from this album. There were many. Did you go back and have a chance to watch them? I did, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, let's talk about them. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the title track, Born in the USA. In terms of the song, Steve Inskeep said on NPR's Morning Edition, maybe the meaning of Born in the USA is the distance between the grim verses and the joyous chorus. This kind of goes back to what we were talking about. It's the space between frustrating facts and fierce pride, the demand to push American reality a bit closer to our ideals. Mm. What do you think about that? I think that's pretty insightful. I think it's along the same lines of, I don't know if you're familiar at all with the artist John Prine, who uh, died last year from COVID, but he had a song called Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore. Uh. And I always think that, and I don't know if Bruce knew that song, but I bet he did. Mm -hmm. And I I always thought of Born in the USA in a way, like just the words Born in the USA, it sounds like such a commercial, you know, truck. Doesn't it? It sounds like like an F-150 or a, a Ram. Yeah, it sure does. Or, or like a bumper sticker, you know, like a porn yeah. on and sure you can have that bumper sticker, but you're driving your truck to work and to everywhere in your life. And the story is much deeper than just exploiting this saying per se. And, and maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but along what you're saying and the NPR quote, I do think that there's a, a really vital sort of dissonance between what Bruce is sometimes singing and even, even in the image that he adopted during this record, you know, of this kind of strong muscular guy, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's probably as best looking as he's ever been, you know, and yeah, suddenly I mean, the Levi's he's muscular, the bandana. I mean, it's a look, yeah. it's an energy. It really is. And, and yet even that, even this physical pinupness. Yes. Of, of Bruce Springsteen in 1984 is a result of something much darker. Um, and, and that was his depression where he's talked openly about like he began to lift weights to take his mind to a better place. And so I think that's in a way sort of metaphorical for 
what was happening with the record itself is that you know this born in the usa that the, the the title of the record the sounds of many of the songs the party atmosphere half of the time yes and in some respects and i know it's a stretch but suddenly bruce springsteen was was sort of like captain america you know a, kind of like a superhero standing in front of in front of the the us flag and and singing born in the usa and so you know, obviously a lot of people misinterpreted that, but I think it's important even now, even, you know, 35, 37 years later to recognize that while he was intentionally portraying, you know, himself in sort of a, you know, strong American regard, I think that that was all to lure you in and to get you hooked and to force people who may have not even ever been forced before in, in their musical listening history to think long and hard about the subtext of all these songs on that record. And there's a dark thread running throughout Born in the USA. And I think Bruce's idea was to get you know the masses, once he saw the possibility of having them turn their attention to him, he wasn't gonna play it safe and, and he wasn't gonna blow his opportunity. And I think Born in the USA does that incredibly successfully, you know, and even to this day, again, like people that are revisiting that record that maybe heard it as a 12 year old now hear an entirely different piece of art that is, it, it transpires and, and transitions to this 2021, you know, wonderfully. While the lyrics are talking specifically about the Vietnam War, they're as relevant as ever in terms of the slice of American life and blue collar workers and economic opportunity. And here we are fighting this war. From the very first lyric, born in a dead man's town, this isn't the nationalistic song of pride that a lot of people thought that it was. And certainly, you know, as a kid, I thought it was. I'm proud to be an American. That's what that meant to me. And there was an issue with Ronald Reagan. He thought it was of nationalistic spirit and American pride. And it really wasn't. Bruce called it a protest song. That's what it was. And I think it's really, really vital and important to recognize that Bruce Springsteen is a really intelligent guy. And he's a really proud American you know, he, Bruce Springsteen recognizes, as do most intelligent artists or writers, you know, whatever, that in order to be really proud of your country, you also have to question it at times. And you also have to put it under, you know, the spotlight and look and, and dissect it and talk about that, what you find with other people. And that's the only way, you know, obviously to move forward and progress as a as a nation and unfortunately i think that there are lots of people that don't understand that way of thinking and that are immediately drawn to again the bumper sticker aspect mm -hmm. of say a born in the usa bumper sticker and yeah the, the ability to misinterpret something so drastically may have never been repeated since in the cultural canon. You know, that, that was, it's still to this day, there are people that come out on stage, politicians or whatnot, you know, trying to use Born in the USA. I think these days Springsteen will quickly shut them down. But the point being that they, they still, right. after all of the tumult and chaos that has come along with the misinterpretation, they still 
misinterpret it. Yeah. And, you know, in watching the video on YouTube, so this has been viewed over 59 million times. I always like to look at the YouTube comments to see what people are saying about it. And it was very interesting because someone said, when I was little watching this video, I used to wonder why he was mad singing this 37 years later. Now I know. And someone else said, Bruce was singing hard as hell. He meant this shit. And that was really what struck me. You know, Bruce looks like you said, like Captain America in this video. He's so handsome. He looks so rugged, but he is screaming. I mean, there's fire and passion and anger and frustration in his voice. And it does sort of run counter to the imagery that you're seeing when you look at the cover art. It's the title of the album. He's standing I mean, you see his backside against the American flag and and you think this is an image of pride, you know, and then that last shot, that sort of beauty shot at the end, when he turns around and looks over his shoulder, like it's a sexy shot. And so you can kind of see why if you're not listening to the lyrics and all you're really catching on to is the chorus, it's going to be misinterpreted. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And to that point, this was a video that wasn't just on YouTube and and some people are watching it now. And then this was a video that was on MTV, you know. In constant rotation. Four times an hour. Exactly. So that summer and all through that fall and into that winter, you know, that tour rolled on, that record was in the charts and Bruce was on the cover of all of the magazines. Right. That video, even as the other videos were rolled out, I don't know what order they came in, but the point is, is that that video still got play. And so by the end of, you know, a year later, June of 1985, Lord knows how many millions had seen that video millions of times. Mm -hmm. And so many probably had just had it stamped into their brain and hadn't watched it so closely I mean, toward the end of the video, he's he's showing people that appear to be like an unemployment line. Yes. Probably my favorite image is he shows like a 57 Chevy or something, and it's got a for sale sign on the front window. It's a beautiful, almost flawless looking car, but someone's getting rid of it. You know, someone is handing it away. And it's again, it's metaphorical in that the good old days are for sale. They're gone. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in the video, we cut to Bruce performing on stage and then these slices of real American life. You know, there's factory workers and oil refineries. And, you know, we see a picture of the Castiles, Bruce's former band from 1964 to uh-huh. 1968. That was kind of cool to see. But, you know, teens on motorcycles and and a, a young couple getting ready for the prom. And it's sort of the American ideal of what it is to you know, fulfill the American dream, this happy-go-lucky American spirit cut against these people standing in the unemployment line, these images of war. And, you know, these are two sides of a very, of the same coin, but they're so completely opposite. They're so foiled to each other. How do we reconcile the space in between these two things? And, And that's what he's calling into question. There's a lot more under the surface here that we need to examine. Exactly, Laurie. That's exactly right. You know, I think that Bruce was really saying, if you really are someone who loves your country, then you're going to take a good hard look at it beyond just putting a bumper sticker on your car. Exactly. It's like the NPR quote says, the space between frustrating facts and fierce pride. Yeah. 
it's especially remarkable to consider, again, nothing against the content of, of MTV, you know, at this period of time, but there wasn't that much that was pushing the political envelope in their rotation, even if it wasn't completely overt. Oh, 100%. You know? And so I think what Bruce did there, again, you have to tip your hat to him, a 35-year-old guy understanding that he has this record label fully behind him, willing to pour all of their money into the campaign for his next record. And he's going out on a limb and he's saying some pretty provocative stuff about really taking a good hard look in the mirror as, a, as American people. And for those that missed it, they missed it, you know, but those of us that got it eventually, and, and even decades later, um, it resonates. And, and I think that's just incredibly powerful. I do too. And in terms of, because this is so closely tied to the album cover art, let's talk about that for a minute. The cover art was shot by famed photographer, Annie Leibowitz. Springsteen said, quote, we had a flag on the cover because the first song was called Born in the USA. And the theme of the record kind of follows from themes I've been writing about for at least the last six or seven years. But the flag is a powerful image. And when you set that stuff loose, you don't know what's going to be done with it. Now, the cover wasn't without controversy. Some folks thought it looked as though Springsteen was urinating on the American flag. Have you heard of that? I have heard of that. I have to honestly say that that never crossed my mind mm -hmm. in that hour. But I can see what they're saying. I don't think that's what he was after here. But I guess maybe... If someone said that to him after it came out, he probably had a small heart attack. <laughs> well, what he said, so it was unintentional. And he said, quote, we took a lot of different types of pictures. And in the end, the picture of my ass looked better than the picture of my face. That's what went on the cover. I didn't have any secret message. I don't do that very much. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there you go. I think that's, that says it all. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about Dancing in the Dark. So Dancing in the Dark has a lot of views on YouTube, not only because it's a super cool song, but because Courtney Cox, pre-Friends, is featured in the video. In terms of the song, it was written by Bruce when his co-producer, John Landau, came to him and said, Bruce, we need a single. And according to Dave Marsh in Glory Days, Springsteen said, Look, I've written like 70 songs. You want another one? You write it. And so he was frustrated. Mm -hmm. But he still managed to write the track overnight. And this song was so popular. What are your thoughts on this one? I'm so glad that we're talking about this song because, well, first, I just want to say, as a Springsteen fan, and just like a fan of any huge artist, I think you tend to change your favorite songs or lyrics or, or shows um, sometimes a couple times in the course of the day. And I can honestly say like a, a while back when we were talking about my favorite song on the record, I, I mentioned Bobby Jean. And back then, an hour ago, it was my favorite song. But now that you've mentioned <laughs> Dancing in the Dark, I think it's my favorite song on the record. Really? Okay. Because I thought it was going to be one of those songs that Springsteen fans are like, oh, like that's the poppy, popular, like glossy song of the album. I can't like that because, you know, it's not really maybe 
true to Bruce. Like he wrote it under protest, you know, like here, here's your yeah. single. You know, I thought, I really thought you were going to be like, eh. Yeah, no, I'm not. I really, really love that song. And I think it's a masterpiece. Um, Dancing in the Dark, to me, uh, lyrically, first and foremost, is really reminiscent of what Bruce was writing uh, back in sort of like the darkness on the edge of town era okay. uh, in 78. And, and it kind of encapsulates this guy who's really uncomfortable in his own skin, who's up in the middle of the night and is not sure what he's supposed to be doing in life. He wants to change his clothes, his hair, his face, you know, even at a young age, um, those lyrics really resonated with me. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like a super popular kid when I was in seventh grade, I was kind of chunky and, you know, girls didn't really like me. I was almost invisible. And um, Dancing in the Dark was maybe the first song that I heard off of this record that I could relate to just directly right off the bat. Even though I'm sure that if Bruce, you know, if I told him that, he was like, it's not really about a 12-year-old fat kid. But, you <laughs> You're know, like, but it was. <laughs> but it was. To me in that moment, it was. Did you see the 2019 film Blinded by the Light? I have not seen that. No, I've been wanting to. Surge. Yeah. Okay. So I love, love this movie. I saw it in the theater and this is the song. This is his first introduction to Bruce Springsteen. He pops that tape into his Walkman and like everything changes for him. It ignites his passion for Bruce Springsteen and ultimately changes his life. And the way it's filmed it's done just beautifully. But yes, those lyrics want to change my clothes, my hair, my face, and the idea that something is happening somewhere. Yeah. It's out there. Like, can I be part of it? Am I good enough? Yeah. And it's those questions and that desperation against this awesome tempo and upbeat music that you're just like, yes, I can. I find this song completely uplifting and it makes me feel triumphant in its questioning. Yeah. I'm with you a hundred percent, Laurie. I, I, I have, and again, maybe there are Springsteen fans that don't like it. Um, but that comes with the territory. I think oftentimes anything that's slightly different or is a huge radio hit or whatever, you're going to have people dragging on it, but I've never looked at it like that. I just, I always looked at it as, as really pushing, uh, you know, the artistic envelope for Bruce. It was different than anything he had ever done. Um, it was obviously very timely at that time in the 80s. And it's just a great, great song that he's been doing it in his Broadway show. Um, and it translates incredible to an acoustic version. It's, it's haunting and it's it's just beautiful in its in an entirely different way. Oh, I'll have to look that up. You're talking about Springsteen on Broadway? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, he was doing it there. Yeah, it's really worth seeing. Yep. Okay. I love this song and I do. I love the video. I can't help it. Bruce looks like a snack in this video. He is so handsome. He's dancing. You know, he doesn't have a guitar in front of him. He's just holding the mic. He looks great. And, you know, this video was directed by Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma directed Scarface, The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, Carrie. I mean, he's no schlub. So, Yeah, it's just fantastic. And then, of course, he brings a then unknown Courtney Cox on stage to dance with them. It's a really fun video. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And the whole Courtney Cox thing at the end is such a bizarre twist, you know, like who would have (laughs) 
ever <laughs> dreamed, you know? It's just so weird and, and yet so right. It's such an American collision uh, that you would never have expected. Right. It's like here, here she is, you know, on this beloved, iconic television show, you know, that America just cannot get enough of all these years later with the boss, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And a little bit of trivia, um, apparently this dance, the Courtney Cox, Bruce Springsteen dance is actually the inspiration behind Carlton's infamous dance on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Is that right? That's what I read. I mean, you know, the internet is never wrong, so it must be true if I read it online. Right. (laughs) I'll tell you on this note for this song, there's a really, really magic video uh, and I don't know where it ever came from. But it appeared, and I think you can see it on YouTube now, and it's Bruce basically warming up and figuring out his moves for Dancing in the Dark for the video. He's in a small room. It looks like it could be like in New York City, like a vacant apartment or something. Um, There's someone else filming him. It's just, it's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, you see him very intimately and it's kind of almost vulnerable because he's trying out something that, for the most part, I don't think he had done on stage before, right. um, you know, let alone in an MTV video that will be seen, you know, by zillions. So yeah, if you Google like dancing in the dark, Bruce dancing, I, you know, the video comes in, it's just a whole movie and it's awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to Google that. And I'm going to try to share that link in the show notes for folks to check out. Thanks for that. That's fun. I'm going to check that out. Someone said yeah. in the YouTube comments, It's almost impossible to believe I was at that show in June, 1984 at the St. Paul Civic Center. Bruce played that song three times in a row to get all the footage he needed. He was so apologetic and we didn't care. Like saying like, we didn't care that he played it three Uh, times in a row. It was so great. Can you imagine being there? Oh, no, I didn't even realize it was during the middle of an actual yes! show. I thought it was sort of, oh, wow. That's it was insane. real. Oh, wow. I know. It's not fantastic. <laughs> that really is. It's so good. Okay. This leads us to I'm on fire. Whoo. This video, this video is like a film. You know, there's this whole scene that happens before the song ever begins. And we've got a very good looking Bruce Springsteen working as a mechanic and a woman comes in. We never see her. He's under the car. So the only point of view we have is like, you know, we see a little bit of her legs and we see her feet. She drives in this vintage Thunderbird. She pulls in and she asks him if he can work on her car. And apparently she brings her car in regularly and she only wants him to work on it. And we never see her face. But she's like, right. you know, can you work on my car? And we do see her. We do see her wedding ring shining. Yes, we light. see her wedding ring and her sexy legs and her and her heels. Yes, and he's like, yeah, you know, I can work on your car. I, I can bring it back to you. And she's like, oh well, we, you know, the husband, uh, we live up in the hills, so you know, it's better if I just come get it. So this is how how we start the video, right? Now we see him lying in bed. It's nighttime. He's staring at the ceiling. And this is when the song begins. He sits up and he gets out of bed and he goes to the Thunderbird and he gets in it and he's driving. We see him arrive outside of her home and it's a very fancy home, presumably like 
I don't know, in the Hollywood Hills or something. That's what that looks like. Yeah, exactly. So the lights are on. He gets out of the car and he goes to ring the doorbell, but he stops himself. And he decides instead he's going to put the keys in the mailbox and then he proceeds to walk home. And she lives really far away. We already have learned this. Right. What are your thoughts on this? (laughs) Well. So many thoughts on this. Yeah, I just watched it with my wife for this podcast, and it had been a while since I'd seen it, so I really didn't even remember what was going to happen, and it had me kind of fascinated um, and even chuckling a little bit, because I think it is probably as close to an acting role as Bruce ever really attempted. Okay. I think it's, it's an interesting video. It's certainly... To me, it it seems to dictate that Bruce is walking up to the precipice of temptation and and doing the right thing. Right. Uh, You know, backing away a a good guy. So there's a good guy imagery that comes along with it. Um, But then I said to my wife, I said, well, if he had actually rang the bell, there's a really good chance he would have got shot because what are you doing here? Right. She's married. And, you know, I don't know. But so in reality, the whole thing seems a little bit funny to me. What do you think? It's clear that there's sexual tension between these two people. You know, we never get to see her face. We get to see his face when he's interacting with her. And of course he looks absolutely smitten, but the fact that she's bringing her car week after week, right? there ain't nothing wrong with that car surge. That car is working just yeah. fine. <laughs> we get the sense of a sexual tension between them. And it's a song really of desire. He's practically yeah. whispering this song. It's very, very different than a born in the USA where he's just screaming, right? So it, right. it's a whisper. Right. It's a short song. And I found myself wanting more. I wanted more of the story. I wanted more of the song. And I saw in the YouTube comments that someone said, this song is about wanting something you can't have. The song is short and you want more of it, but you can't have it which is why you love it. The song is not too short. It's just right. If it were any longer, it would kill your desire. Sometimes wanting something is better than having it. If we had it, we'd just fuck it up anyway. You know you would. There are things in this world that are better off without us. Oh, that's incredible. I love that. Was that a comment on you? Yes. I was like, ooh, a thoughtful comment. I bet Bruce wrote that comment. <laughs> I hope that's true. No, it's true because I actually played it two more times just because I didn't feel satiated by the song. I was like, it's too short. It's so beautiful. I want to hear it again. And so I listened to it three times and then I was like, okay, yeah, but it's the same thing over and over again because it never gets it wrong. It's always just right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm kind of in love with that notion and that theory. I I don't think I had maybe ever embraced that on my own before uh, for that song, but I do really like it. And now I also want to watch the video again. This idea, and in a very meta way, it's a pop song paying tribute to what makes pop songs uh, wonderful. You know, is is that short, leave you wanting more? kind of taste, you know, and and I don't know, that's a lot to wrap your head around. And I like it. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to revisit it again. 
Yeah. And this, this idea of maybe the notion of something being better than what the reality could ever be. Maybe the daydream is where it should be left. You know, we don't want Bruce to be a bad guy. We don't want him to break up a marriage. Of course, we don't want any of those things, but at the same time, maybe it's perfect in what it could never be. Yeah, that's the truth. And that kind of ties in loosely to my boneheaded theory that if he had rang that bell, what's going to happen? Nothing good, right? I mean, maybe he doesn't get shot, but someone's (laughs) life is going to get ripped apart, you know? And so it it really, it it is more than just a a noble move. It's also quite possibly um, shifting the entire future. I don't know. I guess you could, that's one you could sit and drink a whole bottle of wine and analyze and it would be fun to do that. You know, and I never thought of it like that before. Yeah. And I mean, that's a long walk home. You know, if he's presumably in the Hollywood Hills, (laughs) that is, that is his cold shower walking all the way back home. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely going to get, you know, stopped by the police. Yeah, it was a fun watch. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was. You're right. This leads us to glory days. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, I, I love this video. Um, again, it's it's sort of very uh, East Street Band, which I think sometimes is is lost in the whole presentation of the Born in the USA era. You know, with the exception of the tour. You know, when you would see the band live, like. I'm on fire, like we're just talking about, is just Bruce, you know, you wouldn't even know he has a band. So this is a reverse of all of that. And, and it's definitely, in a sense, an homage to all these incredible musicians that he has played with for years. It's a bar band song. It's a bar band video. Yes. Uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of loose narrative around it with the baseball thing, which is cool. But uh, yeah, it, I think it, it works. It, it doesn't blow me away, but it definitely works. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it just, it felt really personal. And I think that's what I enjoyed so much about it. It's a party song. Everyone in the bar is having the best time. And there's this other side to him that's, you know, he's a dad and playing baseball with his kid. And, you know, it's shot around the local area there. And I just love sort of the hometown feel of it. That's like, yeah, you get this glossy magazine, Bruce, you know, and some of these videos, but then you also get this real sort of like, I'm a regular guy who, who likes to enjoy, you know, the, the American pastime, it's just all so American and wholesome and family and it's, and it's friends and it's celebration and it's nostalgia and it's the glory days thinking about the good old times. And what do those glory days mean as a dad too? I mean, you have one son in baseball or a couple of your kids in baseball. Yeah, me personally, I, I have, uh, well, I have both of my sons and I also have a, a young stepson who's just turned seven who's in baseball. Yeah, so okay. we've got a, almost a whole team. That's <laughs> so cool. So my son's in travel baseball also. And so I don't know, it's just that father-son connection of baseball and particularly if you've grown up around baseball fields and yeah, then just that, you know, that other side of your life, just having a good time with your friends in a bar. I really enjoyed this video. And interestingly, this video actually has his first wife in it at the end and his second wife in it throughout. Yeah, that's true. And, and you're right, you know, and, and 
kind of reading between the lines, which I think, again, is for maybe the more advanced Bruce Springsteen fan who's interested in these things. You know, again, we have to remember this was this time in his life when he was really struggling to put down some roots. You know, right. he, he said this as much in interviews and stuff. He was really struggling to find his, his sense of self. He was really struggling to find a place within himself that he could m- maybe be a family man, you know, after all these years of just running and gunning from town to town. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see that imagery at the end, especially where he does have what appears to be a son and he's playing baseball with his son and the, and his wife seems to pull up and honk the horn. Let's go guys. Time to go to dinner. You know, um, these are things that, that he didn't actually have yet. It's almost like a manifestation of that life. Yeah, like some foreshadowing. Yeah. And there there she is playing the tambourine, This, the newest member or one of the newest members, along with Nils Lofgren, uh, Patty Schiaffa, who he ended up marrying right. and having three kids with. Yeah, right. so that that angle of it, you know, is behind the scenes, but it's, it's really... Uh, awesome to look back at that now and say, Oh man, this guy, who knows if he was even, you know, sometimes I see that video and I wonder like, were he and Patty a thing yet? You know, like, was it, was it happening? I mean, was it a I'm on fire situation? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Right. Like we have questions, Bruce. (laughs) I don't know if we'll ever know, but one has to assume that, you know, they went on a world tour that lasted like a year and a half. So somewhere in there, there was at least some kind of a look given from one to the other that was yes. like, you know, it's just, it's kind of romantic. It is romantic. And this video really, this sort of mirrors your own life too, doesn't it? It's playing in bars and, and baseball with kids and the triumph and the roots. And it very closely resembles your experience, Serge. Yeah, I think it resembles a lot of people's, but mine maybe in particular. I'll tell you this, this it's funny that you say that because the bar where the video was filmed is in Hoboken, New Jersey. It's called Maxwell's. Yes. It's a bar I've played with my band probably 10 times through the years. Oh, seriously? Oh, yeah. Many times, you know, and, and for the filming of the video, I think they maybe even made their own little stage that room is is legendary. It's gone now. Sadly, Maxwell's is gone now, I think. Um, and I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it is gone. And uh, it was a, it was a legendary, you know, New York City area club where everybody from the replacements to, you know, Super Chunk, just a ton of awesome bands played there through the years. Oh, that's so interesting. And and two, I mean, I, I touched on this earlier, Steve Van Zant. I mean, we know Bruce is the star of this video, but really, he is so magnetic in this video. He is a one-man party. Yeah, which, which again, like, that's a good point, because I often wonder this, too. Like, was this filmed, like, after the record was made, after he said, I'm going? Because Nils Lofgren is on the stage as well. He's the new guitar player. Okay. So they're all there. This is like a goodbye to Steve Van Zandt, right? So I think what, I mean, I certainly, I don't know. I'm literally pulling this out of my ass. So I mean, feel free audience to tell me I'm 
I'm completely wrong, but I think because the song is glory days, he's thinking about the greatest time maybe in his life as a musician with his band. And I had read that he had invited Steve Van Zandt to come and be part of the video. So sort of maybe as an homage to their time together. And Steve Van Zandt is having the actual best time. You know, I know him primarily as Silvio from The Sopranos. So this is a very different side <laughs> to him than I'm used to seeing. He's just so damn happy to be there. And it, it's infectious. The song is infectious. Yeah, it is. Okay. So you had mentioned Springsteen on Broadway and that returned to the theater in June and ran through September. And Bruce has mentioned possibly touring again in 2022. So fingers crossed to that. And I wanted to ask you, so he's got a podcast called Renegades Born in the USA, Mm -hmm. which is a series of conversations between President Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. They talk about their lives, music, America. Have you listened? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I I listen with my wife together. We've heard every episode on different road trips, and it was even better than I could have possibly imagined. It's just really worth listening to, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Both of those guys are titans and giants in the cultural canon, in, in the world view. But it was really intriguing and kind of genuine, I think, to hear them speak with one another. They obviously like one another. And so there's a rapport there. Um, it was famously spoofed on Saturday Night Live. Um, the whole conversation between the two of those guys, because funny. Um, But I think, I honestly think it's worth listening to just to hear two really intelligent, good storytellers, you know, shooting the shit. Oh, sounds fun. And there's also a book that's going to be coming out. Uh, It's available for pre-sale. It's coming out on October 26, 2021. So all you diehard Springsteen and Obama fans, you can go and you can order that now. So there you go. So I want to tell our listeners about what you're doing because it's so cool. So you write a weekly newsletter about your life and times. It's called Thunder Pie, and it's published every Friday morning. And I'll put a link in the show notes to it, but you guys can find it at sergebelanco.substack.com. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're doing there? Okay, sure. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, you know, it's just been uh, something that I really love to do is is to write. Um, I find it to be, again, kind of sounds cliche, but I find it to be really therapeutic. Uh, and since turning my attention from the band, uh, you know, last winter I found myself in another dark spot. You know, I have a, a wonderful family and incredible wife and awesome kids and stepkids, and yet I've just experienced a lot of, you know, depression and anxiety in my life. And writing has been one of those things that kind of helps to pull me through. And I realized after I heard about this, this whole newsletter phenomenon that's been kind of happening the last few years. And I don't like the word newsletter. It just kind of sounds like, hey, guys, you know, dear everyone, we went to, you know, the amusement (laughs) park last week. (laughs) Here's a picture of the kids in their baseball uniform. It's not like that. No, it's not like that. No, it's not. Not yet anyway. Maybe ultimately that's what it ends up being. But I write an essay. I write an essay once a week. It keeps me writing. I've been fortunate enough to 
have, you know, a, a collection of people that like my writing and that have followed me through the years, whether it's with the band or with other blogs or uh, websites I was writing for. And, and it just means a lot to me to be able to have that opportunity. So, yeah, I get to do it now once a week. Um, I put out like four, maybe five essays a month. There is a, a, a pay part of it. People, some people subscribe and they get more, obviously. But then there's also a free subscription. So if you subscribe for free, I welcome you and you'll get at least one free essay from me. I don't send more emails than that. I don't fill your email box or anything like that. So it, it has meant the world to me. And I, I like being able to do stuff where I'm independent, you know, and, and I can do it on my own by my own rules. So with the exception of, you know, having the platform Substack, which has thus far been really awesome. Um, yeah, it, it, it just feels like it's as much a project that's me as I could possibly hope for, you know, on the eve of turning 50. Yeah. And you had said that you write because writing helps you feel alive. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's very much the truth. You know, and I know that sounds so lame <laughs> in certain lights, but I find writing to be the most revelatory source for me to understand myself, if that makes any sense at all. Like yes. I, I, yes. in the In the middle of going under, that's what I call it, you know, if I dive into this place that I can get to, luckily so far I haven't had trouble doing that, but when I sit down and I begin to write, I often don't even know what I'm going to write about that day, you know, and right. I just, I just dive in and I lose myself in there. And it's awesome. It's, I don't know, you know, I've, I've had nothing else like it and I, it does, it makes me feel alive. And that's why I do it. I, I probably do it more for me than anyone, but I'm really grateful that other people seem somewhat interested. Serge, that really does come across in your writing because I've written alongside of you uh, for a few years. And I don't know if you know this, but there was a time I was actually your editor. I don't think I ever told you that. I don't know that I did know that. Yeah. So I am familiar with your writing and it's a stream of consciousness that does not only belong to you. You're male. I'm female. We're from different parts of the country. You're a little bit older than me. Yes, we have things in common, but we also have a lot of things not in common. And yet I can tell you every single time without fail, every time I read something from you, number one, I know in my bones that it's authentic. I feel it. Number two, I believe you. And number three, I feel like I'm there. And that's really a tremendous gift. And I think this is what the people who come to your writing can come to expect with consistency. I think that it's a place where people feel safe to maybe be a little more vulnerable in their own thoughts and in their own processing of emotion. And I find your writing to be really revolutionary in that way, because I don't get that from a lot of people, but I consistently get it from you. And so for you guys listening, I really do urge you to check out Serge's writing. You can also find more of his writing on his blog on sergebelanco.com. And I know you guys are going to connect to Serge because everyone who does comes back for more, including me. So thank you for what you're giving to the world because it's an incredible contribution. Wow. Thank you, Lori. That, I can't even begin to tell you how much that means to me. It really, really means a lot. And um, It's all true. It really is all true, Serge. I mean it with my heart. 
thank you so very much. That that, that you almost made me cry there. <laughs> oh my God. No. Yeah, that's no, pretty- but I mean, you know, you are an incredible giver of your art. And so, you know, you were a musician for all of these years and you're a writer who's been writing. Gosh, when did you start? You're like a very early blogger. You probably even wrote in journals long before you started writing online, correct? Yeah. And that I wrote for like, we, the band had a website. Yeah. So that's where I really started, you know, and I would just begin to sort of recount things that were happening to us out on the road on the band's website. And, um, I really enjoyed it. I really liked doing that. So yeah, going back probably, uh, you know, 15 to 20 years, um, is when I first got any kind of taste of, of that kind of writing. I had written songs prior to that and that's a whole different animal, but right. I, I I think this is my thing now is is writing sort of this kind of prose stuff. That's wonderful. And really, it really is a legacy to leave behind for your children. And it's a beautiful gift. So I I really do urge you guys to check it out. I'll put all of Serge's links in the show notes. And why don't you, Serge, tell our listeners where they can find you on social media? Sure. Yeah. Well, you can find me under my name on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as Belanco. And that's about it for me on social media. I did try Twitter, but I just. (laughs) (laughs) just, It's a dumpster fire. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. I know it's a place to be, but I just couldn't find a reason for me to be there. Yeah, I hear you. So to wrap this up, Serge, I found another article from an interview you did with Country Stuff in 2019. And you said, I've never strayed from Bruce Springsteen and I never will, man. He has been the one constant throughout my life and he has never fucking let me down. There you go. Amen. I mean, I stand by that. You know, I I really feel that way and I always will. I've stood outside the house where he grew up. I've stood on the stage with him. I've listened to his music by myself. I've listened to his music with the people that I love the most in this world. And through it all, I feel like he's a part of me in ways that I will never, ever be able to explain. And I don't need to explain. It's just, that's how it is. That's just how it is. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being a guest on the pod. I am so grateful that you came here to talk about the legend that is Bruce Springsteen. Thank you so much, Lori. It was a great pleasure of mine. I really had fun. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And to you, Gen Xers, thank you so much for listening. I'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you know what, you guys, be sure to tell your friends. You can find us on the web at theuntitledgenxpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye.